0: Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And on the third day, he will rise again. Verse 20 Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is purposed or prepared by my father. Verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, Let him be your slave, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, as they went out to Jericho, a great multitude followed him and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes would be opened, may be opened. And Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, take our hearts now and deeply embed them into yours. Come into our focus, our attention. Take every moment now, please, and have your way. You know how to speak into our hearts, into our lives. So, Lord, remove from me anything that is entirely my will and place my heart upon yours, Lord. Place my lips upon your heart that I would only speak what you call and ordain now in this time. And I pray that you would do amazing work, that you would speak our languages today in a way that we understand that our hearts could grab a hold of, that our lives could take, that our eyes, the eyes of our understanding would be open that we would hear your voice speak to each of us now please have your way may your Holy Spirit be rich and strong and very 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 prevalent here help us to get it please and may every second be perfect in you so we commit this time to you now, Jesus, in your name. Amen. What say today? As I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the Bible always be the authority. Search the Scriptures. Take the word for it, not my word. In our time stamp, by the end of this chapter, we will be 15 to 25 miles away from Jerusalem. We'll be in Jericho. That's how this chapter ends. By the next chapter, Jesus will be descending on what we know as Palm Sunday. So that takes us the week before Jesus' entrance. 20, It's 15 miles as the crow flies, 25, the route we need to take to get there because of the hilly terrain. Jesus is talking total sacrifice to his disciples, but his disciples are pulling for self-exaltation. His whole thing is surrendering, giving his life as a ransom, coming to save. That's his entire crosshair. And yet his disciples have themselves in their own crosshairs. So Jesus is focusing on saving the lost, but he's teaching his students because of this. Well, what real greatness looks like. And he led us to this parable right before this about a man who owned a vineyard and he sees those sort of if you will kind of putting themselves in position because of their seniority thinking that they deserve more and there's the point and the problem with works when you focus on what you do and not on god's grace it will always be about how you did more than someone else and there's our problem and i don't want you to miss how that connects with this because if you kind of look at this you realize jesus is facing jerusalem so are they But they see Jerusalem as a place to make Jesus king to stand beside him. And Jesus sees he's gone to Jerusalem to die. And here now, as we go from people pushing towards being important because of their seniority, we have this crazy story take place. And here's the most amazing thing. As I look at this text, could there be any place more clearly, obviously, stark and contrasted of Jesus' surrender and his disciples' personal pursuit in this area here. It almost seems inhumane. I I, I rub my eyes as I read this and I realize Jesus is in one position, really letting the guys in, and the other side, these guys are pulling for position and pulling mom in verse 17 we read this "As jesus he was going up to jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples on the road and he said to them behold behold again means stop everything don't give this half a mind don't just kind of hear it with one ear you know how that is right You're texting someone, you're talking to someone else, and your wife is telling you something, your friend is telling you something. And in the beginning, you're kind of hearing information, but then somewhere down the line, you know you're going to be responsible to do something with it. And at that point, you have to go, oh, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, could you start over? Because now I realize these these details are important. Well, there's the idea. Jesus is like, you need to recognize these details. These details are fundamental and they're crucial. And he tells us here 10 basic points. And in these 10 points, five of them are unique to the moment. In other words, up to this point of the 10 basic Things he's saying in verse 18 about what's about to happen to women going to Jerusalem uh, between 17 and 18. That in that though five of them are brand new news to to his disciples. It's the third time Jesus has openly sat down with his guys and told them he's about to get murdered. In chapter 16, verse 21, it tells us he began to show them after Peter declares him the Messiah. They did have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, that the elders and chief priests and the scribes be killed and be raised on the third day. He's not going to give us the death thing without the resurrection. That's key here. In chapter 17, then, he tells us in verses 22 and 23, he'll be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he'll be raised up. So we get that, but here he gives us brand new information, and I remind you, we are now somewhere between roughly 20 to 15 miles away from Jerusalem. So we're out of place at this point because the temple itself is at least seven stories high. We can actually see it from where we are. So we can see Jerusalem in the distance. And Jesus says, that's where we're going, but I'm going there to die. And he says, then they will condemn him to death. That's new. They will deliver him to the Gentiles, the condemned part. That means there'll be some form of, legislative judgment, if you will, or legal judgment. They'll deliver him to the Gentiles, that's new. He'll be mocked, that's new. They will scourge him, that's new. And he'll be crucified, and that's new. And here's the rare and and, and raw thing about it, is that twice before this, Jesus has told his disciples they had to pick up their cross and follow him, but Jesus until now hasn't told them he was going to. So here Jesus is saying, Look at I'm talking total sacrifice. You unless you pick up your cross and follow me daily, you're not actually even going to be worthy to be called my student. That's all that a disciple is is a student. And but yet in chapter ten, verse thirty eight and in sixteen twenty four, he's told them that twice that they need to do that. Now Jesus tells them it's his turn to pick up the cross, and they get to see that. But again, he never just says that without really letting him know he's going to rise again. He'll never tell you that something needs to die without telling you there's going to be something new on the other side of it. But you can't have a resurrection without a death. But I want us to get to the humanity of the moment and not just the information. Because Jesus is really trying to let the guys in. I mean, Jesus has got the heaviest heart he's had up to this point. The idea of this crucifixion is a reality to him. This moment that he's been dreading He's really been, he's, he's hated it. You know, there's no, there's no reason to want that other than, of course, the product. And imagine if Jesus only saw the sacrifice but didn't see the benefit on the other side. He would have never gone to the cross. You see, what was at the other side? It was you. It was me. And there's the crazy part about it. Is there was no benefit and joy in the cross if it wasn't for what he would gain on the resurrection, which again is you and me. That tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. And Jesus is trying to let them in. Understand, this isn't just a moment where the teacher... I mean, if you've ever been like this, you recognize if you've ever taught or discipled, you get to that point where you know there's information you want to transfer. But somewhere down the line, you build a relationship and you start letting them into you and not just the stuff. You, it's beyond the program. And, 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 and in those days, by the way, discipleship wasn't, here's our program, fill these things out, let's, let's fill in the blanks and all this stuff, here's our program. Understand, discipleship, you basically went and lived with your teacher because it was... I was much more caught than taught, and it's one of the things we definitely have lost in contemporary Christianity. Is it's like all programmatic, and it's on the back of a cart instead of being carried on the shoulders of priests. And there's there's the danger in it. And, And so understand, Jesus is sitting down with these guys, and he's really being very human with them. I mean, he's he's pouring, he's opening up, and he's pouring forth his heart. Guys, I'm gonna get killed and i'm not just going to get killed i'm going to be crucified there is no more torturous way to die than this this isn't a drive by this isn't a lancing this isn't a shooting this is i'm going to be they're going to make sure that they do this in a way so that i die slowly so everyone can watch but i'm going to be betrayed by my own people i'm going to be handed over to the unsaved gentile world around me and they're going to mock me they're going to point and laugh and spit And to be honest, many who are following me will join in. And there's one of the hard parts of this. Is that Jesus knows that there'll be those who've claimed to follow him will be yelling, crucify him. I mean, even the multitude that Jesus has surrounding him at this moment are going to stop blind guys from coming to him to get healed. Imagine what the crowd's thinking at the moment. We, we assume Jesus is going to come in and he's going to do what the, the Bible had prophesied that the king is going to set up. his his kingdom, and he's going to defeat the greatest enemy. The problem is at that moment, we think the greatest enemy is Rome. We can't see that what we really need is deliverance from our sins. I mean, Egypt came and went. Assyria came and went. Babylon came and went. Rome has come and gone. But every man is still a slave to sin without Jesus' intervention. And I wonder... I wonder how many times the Lord has really wanted to pour forth his heart before us. And like these guys, I'm too intoxicated by the wiles of the world. I'm so consumed in myself. It's like the Lord is trying to let me in and I'm building barricades with mirrors. Because all I can think about is me. And He's really just trying to pour forth his heart. And here I am trying to hear him. But only for my own purposes, not his. It's like, guys, I really, I really need you to hear my heart here. And these guys are are still thinking about how this is going to get them a leg up to the next place. So we go from this situation where all of a sudden here's Jesus trying to say, listen, please hear me. And they're still unwrapped in their own thing. And they're so unwrapped in their own thing that they really can't hear the Lord speak. And then from there, all of a sudden, we have this crazy situation where it goes from this to mom of the two boys. And you read the situation, and is there anyone other than me that thinks, how heartless can you be? You either have to not hear what Jesus just said, or you have to be consciousless to actually do that, hear that, and then somehow after that still send mom. But in verse 20 we read, then... Things are put together. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons. Zebedee's the dad's name. The sons are James and John. We know that Jesus would call them for what it's worth, the sons of thunder. Now, of course, I think that's Mark 3.17. Now, there's the argument. Does that mean mom's name is thunder? Well, I mean, in that this is mom here. And there's an argument about who this woman is and why she has a right, if you will, to try to, to jimmy for position with Jesus. And there's arguments by people who, uh, you know, who wear glasses and talk with you know impressive accents and and really sound brilliant. And then the, the two basic ones basically come from these two texts. Uh, the first is in John 19:25, because in John 19:25, when Jesus is being crucified, there's a bunch of women there, sitting at the foot of the, or you know, crying at the foot of the cross, and says, "There stood by at the cross Jesus' mother." And his mother's sister. And some assume that his mother's sister, that would mean Jesus' aunt, was this boy's mom, which would make Jesus cousins with James and John. We have no text to support that, but that's possible. We can't say there's no text that, doesn't, that says it isn't. But there is another text, and that's in Luke 8, verse 3. And in Luke 8, verse 3, we read this, that Jesus, as he went about his ministry, it tells us that there were people who came with him, including his disciples, but also Joanna, the wife of Chutza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. It appears to me, I mean, let's face it, Jesus was homeless, but he still had to eat. And he tore it around in places as he was healing people and ministering. He wasn't charging anyone for it. Who do you think sponsored Jesus' ministry? Now, have you ever thought about this? Women sponsor Jesus' ministry. They sponsored it. And somewhere down this, these women who get, some cases, we get like someone's a, this guy's wife. She doesn't even get her name in Scripture. But this gal and these others contributed in such a way that it allowed Jesus to do what Jesus does. And somewhere in all of that, think about it, the women in the Middle East 2,000 years ago contributed to the greatest ministry that would ever take place on earth. And what do you think it's like when they stand before God with that? Now, somewhere in the line, one of these two things is quite possible, or at least plausible. So either she was Jesus' money, Or she was Jesus' aunt. And of course, from 1 Timothy 5, we read about the way, don't rebuke older men, treat them like fathers, and treat older women like mothers. There's a respect you give to older people. We don't have that in our country here, but some of your cultures do have that. The moment we move to being economically driven, we'll never think older people are actually of a great benefit. Because economics are heartless. And the moment mammon becomes God, we become heartless to follow it, because those who worship become like it. Now hear me in this. Somewhere down the line, this woman falls to her knees and begins to ask a favor of Jesus. And she does it like maybe if those of you are parents, your kids might. I'd like you to say yes before I tell you what I'd like. And that's what she's saying. And Jesus is like, what are you asking? The boys are with her. Did you notice that? And he's going to answer them, not her. And she says, let my boys be one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. For which, then, he's going to turn to the boys and go, Do you have any idea what you're asking? You have, you have no idea. Which is an interesting thought. In other words, it's like, look at what you're asking is so different than the words that come out of your mouth. Are you really able to drink of the cup that I'm about to drink of? And, by the way, are you? notice it says, "And Are you able to be baptized with the baptism? I am baptized. Not, not going to be. Notice it says, I am. I'm already there. For which they, as our brilliant theologians of the day, say, yeah, of course, sure, Uh uh-huh. Having no clue. Because again, he told them, you have no clue. So let me build on this for a moment so we can get a better understanding of what in the world they're asking. And we'll develop it here in regards to the issue of this cup and this baptism. Because let's face it, by the time we get done with this text, God brilliantly puts at the end of it all two guys that were blind that can actually now see. Because Jesus touched them. And that's my prayer for all of us right now. Is that God would open our eyes to this text and that we would really see. Okay, so hear me on this. I'm going to need a couple people as an example. I'm going to use Bruno here. <clears throat> King Bruno. Come on up, King Bruno. This is, for the moment, King Bruno. King of Portugalia, Smolia. I'm trying to keep it yeah. open. No, no. Now, Every king has two people that he has that stand with him. One will be to his left hand, and you can just sit right there because I know you're a bit unwell. But uh, one is at his left hand, and why don't you come right here? And one is at his right hand. And go ahead, and do this. Stand right next to him like this. Would you please? Good. That's good. That's good. All right. Kind of. Yeah. Now listen. This is really important. Of all of his kingdom, two people more than anyone, two people have to be the ones that are most able, that are most trustworthy, that are most kingdom minded. And and the king is convinced are the most faithful. Faithful not just to the king because he doesn't want you guys because you guys have access. Other people don't. But you're also, I mean, the king could, ha- could be on his throne and you'd be the only ones in the room and you don't actually have to have the permission everybody else has. to. He has to hold the scepter out for everyone else. You guys get free reign. So you have to be somebody that you not only trust, loves you and trusts you, but also someone that is, minding, is mindful to the values of your kingdom. Because if they completely differ on your view with your kingdom, well, then clearly they'll want to kill you to take the place. Does that make sense? Now, the guy on your right... This is the guy who gets the job done. That's why we often use the term a right-hand man. Now, underneath his authority would be normally, this is normally the chief of his commander. The commander-in-chief, you know, the guy that sort of oversees his army. Because that's usually what a king has to get done. He wants to make sure he either protects his kingdom or he gathers more land. So with that, this is the guy that gets that done. Does that make sense? So we even say, you know, that's my right-hand man. What does that mean? That's the person I know that if I need something done I can trust, this is the guy for it. I believe I have two great right-hand men. Now, with that, kids say this. And three amazing guys that we seem to follow, and as we continue to draw and follow the Lord, this guy right here, this is the guy that whatever the will of the king is, this is the guy you expect it to happen. Now, he may recruit and incorporate other people into that, because let's face it, if he says, I need you to defend the west end of this, he can't do that on his own. He's going to be responsible for the army, and they all have to submit to him. Does that make sense? But the king doesn't only just do it by military might, he might do it by offering a peace. Does that make sense? Follow me on this. But the left hand guy, on the other hand, this is the guy that is responsible for the annals, the recording, describing the of it. Often, if you were to have a counselor, that was the guy at your left hand because he was the guy that you expected to be the one who, could, first of all, had to be able to read and write, but he wrote the the chronicles of the king. So he was always the one that would be able to check to make sure that the king didn't pass a law, that now he wants to pass a new one that's contrary to it. So this was the guy that you always checked for truth. That was the way it worked. Now, for the king, it was often, these guys have to be your most brilliant men, let's be honest, because you want the brilliant guy to be able to lead your armies, and you want the brilliant guy to be able to make sure that he's quick enough To remember the laws and the things that have been recounted so that he could say, hey, by the way, and if you remember this story in the in the book of of Esther, when when the king actually can't get any sleep, he goes and calls for the chronicles to be read to him, because after all, the story of me puts me to sleep. So, you know, that's you got to get it. You get it from this guy. Does that make sense? Now, it is important to recognize, by the way, that we read that Jesus, at least four different times in the book of Hebrews alone, when he finished the work of God, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, that tells me who's sitting on the throne, doesn't it? The Father. But it also tells me why is he sitting? He's always standing because he's always going to be needed because the job is done. At the cross, when Jesus died for us and rose again, he sits now at the right hand of the Father. Does that make sense so far? So the question then, well then, who is this guy for the moment when we look at it? What's that? Oh, man, you are on it. Give me one of these, King. Nice job, King KB. Okay. Now, follow me. Like this is the guy that we read is going to bring to our remembrance the things that have been spoken. This is the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is not something ethereal where we just be like, what well, I really need is a good shaking. I really need a good tingle. This is the guy that's, the, and we read, the spirit of truth. We'll read that in John 14 through 16. It is the one thing he's called more than anything other than comforter, more than anything else. This is the guy you recount to. Does that make sense so far? Now, ultimately, the traditional kingdom, sooner or later, this guy is going to give up his kingdom. When this guy gives up his kingdom, as as kings would, or hands over bequeaths his kingdom, when he does, often, this guy, by the way, would be his son. That would only make sense. Who better is a commander of your army if you trust them and who knows the way things run than your son? So if he hands the most brilliant guy that you might know and hands him the kingdom here at this point, who do you put as your right-hand man now? Traditionally, the one guy that you trusted that was most brilliant that you knew knew the kingdom. Often what you did is you took your scribe, this guy, because he was the other brilliant guy, and you put him and made him your right-hand man. Does that make sense? That's the way traditionally it would work. So imagine, if you will, they see that Jesus is going to go and take... See the rule you got there? Jesus is going to take the throne is the way they see it. And they see that handed down from God the Father. And if that's the case... They want to be the ones that get the job done or the ones that are going to be brilliant enough to recount all of the truth of God to be able to be His counselor? That seems like a pretty crazy role, now, doesn't it? No, go ahead and have a seat, you guys. Thank you. Now, here's the point in all of that. Now, understand, I remind you, the guy that's at the right hand is the one who gets the job done and he incorporates then the army for those services. Well, understand, if the Holy Spirit be the one who does the work now... Well, then who is the army to be incorporated for his purposes? Well, that's us. As Christians to say, yes, that's where we live. But see, what they're trying to do is they're actually trying to replace the role of the Holy Spirit by being themselves. But after all, we do that all the time if we're not careful. So Jesus then turns to them and goes, you have no idea what you're asking. This is why he'll say, you can't take these roles. I didn't even assign these roles. The Father assigned these roles. Because as he hands me the throne, that's his job to do. And they should get that because that's the way that works. So follow me on this for a second. Jesus then asks, he says, are you willing, are you able then to drink of my cup? The cup I'm going to drink of. Do you know, think about this in Scripture. There was only one thing Jesus ever feared while he was on earth. Did you ever think about that? It was the cup. It was the only thing, it was the only one thing that Jesus ever asked not to have. It was the cup. That was the only thing God, that Jesus ever asked the Father to take away from him was the cup. So what cup is he speaking about here? Well, here's the way it works. In Scripture, there's always two cups. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, there's only two cups. So I decided to put two cups in front of you here. This is a cup, as we know it. By the way, I can thank um, one of the charity shops. It's a quite nice cup, by the way. I didn't want it to look too much like a wine glass. Anyways, and then this is a cup that's 2,000 years old. It's a very different cup. And obviously the reason is people's mouths were much bigger. No, no, that's not at all. (laughs) Uh, This was the way a cup would be back then. Now, we see things with handles, but traditionally things with handles were pitchers. Now, the the great thing about this is, is you could see it there. It isn't even kiln yet. They would take it, and of course, they would drink it like this. So let's take a look at these two cups for a second. Here's the danger. This is the cup, by the way, that we've earned. We're going to see it here. And this is what God calls it according to Scripture. And again, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true. I'm going to give you your texts. In Psalm 11, verse 6, we read that the fire, brimstone, and burning wind shall be the portion in their cup of those who stand against God. In Isaiah 51:17, he calls it the cup of his fury, the cup of trembling." In Jeremiah 25:15, it is called the wine cup of his fury. Ezekiel 23:33, it is called the cup of horror and desolation." In Revelation 14, just so you see, it's called, in 14:10, I believe, it's called the cup of his indignation. In essence, what it is, is you've declared war against the king and there's a cup. Oh, by the way, there is something kind of important to note. Do you remember the situation with the king and his left hand and his right hand? If the king wanted to make peace with someone, which side would he send? He'd send his right hand. He'd send his right hand because that's the guy that gets the job done. Does that make sense? So he'd say he would send this guy to go and make peace with someone. And how would he do that? He would offer a cup. Now, on this side, what if you wanted to make peace with him? You would go through the left side because he would want to make sure that there wasn't anything recorded that said you couldn't. So you had to go through the scribe for that. Interesting as it is. Now, here's my question. If with the father we have the one who stands in the truth the complete truth that we can refer to to make sure as the holy spirit and then we have jesus the one who gets the job done and jesus takes the throne and as he takes the throne the holy spirit's the one who does the work now what do we have that we refer to that completely we can check to make sure everything is true the word of god and those are the places john and james aren't you thankful john and james didn't get those spots Imagine John and James the same ones who by the way just within the last week and a half have tried to call down fire On an entire city in Samaria because they wouldn't let him through so which one do you want for that? Do you want that one to be the one representing the truth or the one that gets God's will done? Neither works, but I remind you it has to be that which is most consistent with the king's heart Most in allegiance with his kingdom that is most faithful that is most brilliant and most trustworthy And that's certainly not going to be any of us Here's the problem With this particular cup? It is the cup of the world. The world that is declared enmity with God. And it's everything we want here in the world. Think about what we really want. Power. Who doesn't want that? Love. Why not? Fame. Yeah, let's put that in there. Money. Still the cup of horror and desolation. And I'm not telling you having money sends you to hell. But I'm telling you, if those things are your gods and that's what you really, really want, you won't drink of this cup. Because you'll be too busy chasing this one. Stick a good look at it. Because in the sight of God, this is what it kind of looks like. You get it? But in the end, what is it worth? Because interestingly enough, this is the cup that actually says, I won't drink this one. So this one is the one that says, all right, this is Jesus. He's offered the cup. He's done. He's offered his peace through his right hand man. And you say, no. Then the only other cup to drink of is the cup of enmity. But what's interesting is, is you don't have to drink this cup. As a matter of fact, there's a second cup as we see. In Psalm one sixteen, verse thirteen, it's called the cup of salvation. In Jeremiah sixteen, seven, it is called the cup of consolation. In Psalm sixteen, verse five, David says, You this is speaking of God, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You see, this cup is the cup of Jesus. And Jesus says, are you really able to drink of the cup I drink of? Sure, we're able. The only reason why this cup could be offered to me is because somebody already drank this one. There's the point. And that goes all the way back, 720 years before Jesus set foot on earth as we know him because it tells us this in Isaiah 51:22 see i have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling the dregs means the very bottom the residue down to the residue of the cup of my fury and you shall no longer drink it let me ask you something because we're going to take it beyond this to the next step but i'd like you to consider which cup are you really trying to drink from i mean are you trying to drink from this for power or this part you're trying to drink this for peace and for importance and for comfort or you're drinking from this one because if we're really going to be honest this one is in my hand a whole lot more than this one is to be honest if this is in my hand for a second it's too long and if my hand fits well around this one i'm in trouble because i can't hold both don't you find it interesting? He didn't just say cup, though. He said baptism. You don't find it interesting. The cup is what goes in you, the baptism is what you go in. The word means to be immersed. And I find it interesting because the moment I seek the things of the world, I'm blending a whole lot in me, but also I'm seeking to be a part of something else. I'm seeking to be part in, to be in something else. And what I'm part of is this. So there's a family here, and there's a family here. Which one do I really want? I mean, Jesus says, by the way, to him, look, like, you will drink of the cup, but you'll drink of my cup. You won't have to drink of this one, boys, but you're going to drink of my cup. And, and that's this one here. I'm going to give you this one. Because, and you're going to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Interesting. There's so much more than what's in you, but also what you're in. When I say it this way? Jesus made that clear in John when he said, you in me and I in you. And I get it. In Romans it tells us this that we were baptized into the baptism of Jesus. See, Jesus' baptism was pretty simple. The idea was that he was killed, he was murdered, and then he was buried, and then he was raised to the newness of life. And he says, anybody who's willing to publicly testify of that, well, they're aligning themselves to that very thing. Because what this is is about allegiance. So on one side, you want to try to make God with you know, you to want to make peace with God. I'm really not sure what that is. Um, (laughs) And of course, not like that's going to be distracting or anything. Does that change it? Not at all. Okay. Well, No, there was a time when all we had to do was scream. And that was different altogether. So. Okay, I think I got it. Thanks, Hugo. Well done. Uh, the moment we publicly testify in line with Jesus. Now, the question is, and please hear me, because this is where the whole thing really grinds down here. When a king seeks to go from the left. Who do you think becomes the dominant king? The one that is seeking to make right with the king or the one that's actually they're going to? They make peace with the king but assume their dominance. But if you make peace through the king through his right, you are assuming submission underneath him. And there's the key. That's why this king, when he offers through his right, he's still superior. And here's the problem, beloved. Please hear me in this. The problem is... We don't mind Jesus saving us. We love the fact that he drank the cup of our filth. He drank the toilet water of our being. But we're still trying to go through the left and not the right. In essence, what we're really trying to do is we're still trying to drink this cup, but make him in allegiance, pull him in with us. Instead of saying, Jesus, you're Lord, and I'm willing to submit to your throne. And I'll be honest, the vast majority that call themselves Christians, I can't tell you whether they are or not, but I can tell you about me. In the end of it all, Jesus never said, as long as you declared me Savior, we're cool. Find one scripture where it says anything of that sort. It is always about declaring him Lord. And you can't do that through the left. You have to do that through the right. And there's some people that are like, look, I just want to have an experience with the Holy Spirit. And I want it to be ethereal. And I want to feel it. I want to shake. And I want to, yeah, I'm saved. But that doesn't work. Just the same way that you can meet someone and go, wow, they are perfect wow, do I love them. But that doesn't make you married. It just means for that moment, you're feeling something. And please understand, in the end of it all, even those who call him Lord, Jesus is going to say, not everyone even calls me Lord. Lord will actually inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because he says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? You may call it that, but you're still coming in through the left side. And that ain't working. In the end of it all, it's got to be about his truth and his lordship. I've got to be willing to get underneath that. And I get this whole baptism thing. Because the moment I said yes to Jesus, he put me in a family. You get to be part of that. God help you. And the family you get to be a part of, where all people change you. But one thing we should all have in common is his lordship. That's the one thing we should have in common. And we could try to go and build little groups about whether we're black or white or young or old or rich or poor, whether we're socially gifted or not, or whatever the case is. You know, we could try to build it about our, about our hoods. You know, well, I'm from up here. I'm, we're the north side Christians. Well, we're the south side Christians and all that. But in the end of it all, the one thing we all have in common is that we were sinners going to hell. Jesus saved us and he's our Lord. And that is, in other words, we have all of the future together. That's what we have in common. But our past, that's a very different story. And if we want to focus on that, there will always be divisions in the church. And he doesn't want that. So notice from the moment that he does this, by the way, and that text, by the way, for him, and by the way, the, the Romans 6, 4 is the whole idea of being buried with Christ and baptism, raised in the newness of life. And he tells us, by the way, remember what Jesus said? That, uh, that, well, John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And people love to put those two things together, but then there's no need for an end. The whole idea of it is that it's in the ablative tense. So and what that tells us is these are, these are your two options, if you will, smoking or non-smoking. He's like, you're either going to be baptized in fire or you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Which one do you want to be immersed? Remember, that's what the word means. Which one do you want to be immersed in? Because I'm not really that interested in fire. I don't know how many of you have ever been burned before, but burning is no fun. I mean, even when you get frostbite, they call it burning after a while because it does burn. And I've never gone, wow, that was awesome. Could I have that again? You know, it's interesting. Do you know the next time Jesus is going to speak about his left and right hand is in Matthew 25, 33, when he says that he'll separate the sheep from the goats? I don't know about it. I want to be in that left hand, right hand situation. But I find it very important that Matthew, the same one who recorded this, Tells us in Matthew 27, verse 38, that when Jesus was being crucified, there at the foot of the cross was John, but there he was baptized. I'm sorry, he was crucified in between one man at his left hand and one at his right hand, in those exact words that are used. And I would think, aren't you thankful for when, you know, we, probably, we say thank you for unanswered prayer. Listen, no is an answer. Thank you when God says no. If you think that the only time God answers your prayer is when he says yes, what kind of relationship do you have with him again? Who's the Lord? But well, I'm just waiting for God to answer my prayer. And God's like, no, I have kids. I know how that works. Yeah, can I have that? No. Okay, well, I'll just wait until you want to answer. I did answer. Now, notice in verse 24, it says, when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased. Isn't it interesting? It went from the twelve to the ten. Because now instead of the 12, it's the 10 and 2. You know why? Because anytime you start to pursue your own personal greatness, there will always be division. And he tells us that. But please hear me in this. Jesus also doesn't endorse being a slacker. Do you remember Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians? The day everybody runs at the race, run so you can win. He says, man, I, don't, I, I do it according to the rules. I buffet my body so that I can really... But there's a difference between, listen, please hear this. There's a difference between personal best and best of show. Best of show is when you've performed so well that everyone thinks you're, you're amazing for it. But it's all about you. Versus personal best, where it's all about you being completely handed over. Do you see the difference? So he uses this moment then to teach them. And this is the second huddle. I remember the last time he huddled with the guys was when he told them, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be murdered, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be crucified and raised again. Now he's having a second meeting where he's like, look it, the issue of you wanting to be great is a good thing. Don't miss that. God's not like, you know what I would really love is for you guys all to be just total basket cases. That'd be great. He says, look it, being great's great. You just have the wrong great. There's the problem. Being wanting to be great for you, Well, it's like, but but I have something inside of me that says I need to be important. Find it at the cross. I have something inside that says I need to be validated. Find it at the cross. And if you don't find it at the cross, let me warn you, beloved, if you don't find it at the cross, you ain't finding it anywhere. You can try, but no money's enough, no power's enough, no fame is enough. I've had them all, and I can guarantee you they just don't work. And you keep going and then you feel like a total freak because now you're sitting at the all-you-can-eat buffet and you're still constantly hungry because it doesn't satisfy the soul. And you're trying. And then you go and you find out that Jesus knows everything about you and died on the cross for you anyways. And that's how important you are is that you'd rather die than live without you. And everything changes. When you're listening, was looking. The, the issue is what model are you getting? By the way, the church is really guilty of this because we even hire secular business executives out there to teach us how to run a great church business. And so we have church growth seminars. And and forgive me for it sounding like I'm just bagging on everything. I want us to be different. There's a big difference between growing Christians and growing people in numbers. And if the greatest success is that we have a full church, we'd hand out beer at the door and we'd fill this place up the first week. But if what we really wanted was to see people grow in Christ, to be honest, we are going to be a little weird. We're going to be rather weird. Because we want to hand them heaven. They got enough earth here. And people are like, well, then you'll be irrelevant. Well, so which needs to change, earth or heaven? Imagine God saying, you know, heaven's a little irrelevant. People don't really get it. So let's just kind of, let's put some sin in there. You know, perhaps at a discotheque somewhere over there. Let's make, sure, let's, let's make sure that all the apostles go clubbing. You know, you know, like by the time you're done, it's like, well, what part of this is heaven again? Let's face it, we come here to get away from all of that, to find out what the truth is, not just try to make it so that we kind of inch our way over to something. And it should be weird because the rest of the world's nothing like it. And Jesus goes, man, listen, the Gentiles, the important people, those are the guys at the top of the pyramid, because at the end of it all, the more that people serve them, the more important they appear to be. But on the other side of it, oh, It shouldn't be your case. if if you really want to be on it, serve. And if you want to be the greatest, you want to be the best, serve the most. So all of a sudden, these two cups become less relevant, but here's how we bring this around. Because we need to see our eyes open in this. Okay, so this is the cup of the world, if you will. This is the cup of salvation. But Jesus is a cup for us at the end. And the question is, do I, am I interested in the cup of honor? Because the cup of honor, on the other hand, is given by a king. We would today, we might say, you've been knighted. But even that kind of has its own issue, doesn't it? Because, I mean, they're starting to knight people these days. I'm not too sure what's going on. But, uh, you know, But uh, but please hear me in this. Jesus really wants to honor us, but he's not going to change the rules. It isn't like the test, you know, they go, well, everyone seems to be not doing so well, so let's just bring the grades down a bunch instead of let's teach the people better. Please hear me in this. He's a famous performer. He calls himself Christian in Christian circles, and he performs in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people in stadiums. And he walks that razor line where he still tries to be sort of tasteful as a secular artist, but enough hints of heaven to keep the Christians buying. And that's and, and he says, "Look, at, my ministry has nothing to do with the public, you know." But he has no other real ministry. But in that, all, he's a million, but somewhere in all of that, that's his life. That's his life summed up. That's his life summed up. But listening to one of his tracks, on the other hand, is a single mother. And she prays for her kids. And she reads the Bible to them. And she works a part-time job because she has to pay rent. And as she works that part-time job, everybody there knows she's a Christian. But in, and she, she'll, she, in the end of it all, she tries to do what she can. Occasionally, she'll get the chance to pray for someone, to be honest, because they're going through a hard time. And they just know she's the one person they can turn to. Let me ask you, who gets which cup? There's a wealthy East Ender. He's never had to check his balance. He buys what he wants, whenever he wants. He's never needed a budget. He's never had to say no. Now, look, somewhere down the line, he prayed a prayer a long time ago. And what that means is he occasions church now. You know, he dresses nice. Televangelists really bother him. But if we're going to be honest, they've always bothered him. Now he's a little more ethical in his dealings because he just says, well, I'm going to just do it through my actions so people know that I'm a nicer guy. But in the end of it all, it, it, what did they get is they've never heard about Jesus. through The guy, they don't even know he's a Christian. And occasionally, he'll donate clothes that he's grown out of to charity. But on the other side of town, there's a girl who gets up before dawn. She catches the train to make the latte and the pan chocolat that he's going to grab every Tuesday morning before his board meetings. She's known as a good girl. She's religious. She's invited her friends to church on a few cases. She's never really seen anyone at this point yet say yes. But they all know where she stands. And she'll pick up shifts for people because she knows they're in a bind and she wants to represent Christ. And they may not totally get the God thing they know she's the one person they can always rely on. And she'll get up in the morning, do a sunrise shift, and then make it to church at night. She'll sing with all of her heart. A year's salary for this girl couldn't buy this guy's watch. But which cup? Who drinks which cup? And I'm not telling you the other person isn't saved. I'm telling you that someday eternity is going to be before you. I mean, we know, we know, we know. The way we're at right now is temporary. We know that. And the older you get, the more God's going to remind you through your own body. I don't like it, but it's true. It's like, don't get too comfortable in that thing. you moving out. The real question is, if we're spending all of our time investing as much as we can in the temporary, and then we show up paupers for eternity, do you really think it's going to be worth it? She's the socialite. She leads a posse of online followers in life. Oh yeah, she, Christianity is a tool in her pocket. She prayed a prayer a long time ago. She's read a few scriptures and she knows how to quote them along with the sewer of the social media that she's gotten a whole bunch of comebacks and quotes and so forth. She would much rather, and she's quick to quote Tarta, she's quick to you know Espinosa and the 14th century Swiss philosophers. She's really quick in regards to making sure she can tell you who Voltaire is and she'll make sure she quotes things she likes from it because it makes her look really smart and she's got all kinds of people and they'll follow her anywhere because of it and she's even shot down a bunch of closed-minded Christians in her mind because after all she's the world's leader in this stuff she's a smart person but one of the purple persons she's shot down well it was a wife who tends to her ailing husband he's really struggling right now she's committed to share and bear the struggle with him I mean the pseudo-christian circles around say bail on the guy he's not worth it Get out. But somehow inside she knows that's not wor- that's not it. And she prays. She prays for the strength she needs to endure. And she knows someday there'll be a victory that the both of them will celebrate. She's confident in it. Even on those days where she does it doesn't make any sense. And my question to you is which one drinks which cup? I mean here's the weird thing in all of this, beloved, please hear me. This cup is not given to the great on earth, unless they're great servants. And there's the problem. We live governed by convenience and we convince ourselves that if I can make this as easy as possible, we're good. So the least amount of effort necessary. Well, you ever have somebody work with you and that's what they do is give the least amount of effort. And at the end of it all, you think, man, one thing's for sure. That person's not helping me again. Because all we're really looking for is to have it easy. And yet, in that, we still think somewhere God's going to look at us when we walk before heaven, stand before him, and we're going to hear the words, well done. Well done. Look at how you've done life well. Good, which means productive. Faithful. Servant. I don't see anywhere where he says, wow. Wow. So glad you're in heaven. Man, everybody's been queuing up to get a signature from you. I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with being in the public eye. How in the world could I say that as I'm sitting here talking to you? The question is, do we serve? Are we serving in his name? Are we just being nice and hoping that's good enough. But I remind you, we're not just being servants. We are servants under our king. And the king has a kingdom and the King kingdom has a purpose. And the purpose, as Jesus made clear, was to serve and to save. He says, listen, the greatest will be your slave. It goes from, by the way, deacon's the first word to doulos is the second. And, and then he says, listen, if you really want to be great, serve as I've served. Because after all, you want to represent the world, you'll be like the world. But if you want to represent this kingdom, you're going to be like the king. And man, what if we really were humble? You know, as Proverbs tells us twice, before, humil- before honor is humility. And pride comes before a fall. So this is pride now, but there's a fall. And this is humility now, and it's honor later. The difference is, all you get is temporary here, and all the honor you get here is permanent. The best you get, the best artwork you get, is a temporary tattoo on this one. It'll fade. And I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for me. Because I don't know how you came in here, what was on your heart, what was on your mind, what was the purpose for coming in this room. But I know God's purpose. God's purpose is that he's really looking through the power of his Holy Spirit to recruit an army of people that are willing to serve in the name of Jesus. And he told us that no matter what we're to do, we're to do it in his name. And we're to do it heartily. Do it with everything. That's what Colossians tells me. God says, look it. I don't want part of your love. I want you to love me with everything. He tells us in Deuteronomy. He says, I want you to seek me in Deuteronomy 4 with everything. Everything we do, we're supposed to be all out. And I know how to be all out in my sin. I know how to be all out with violence. I know how to be all out in a lot of things before I knew Jesus. I'm still trying to learn what it means to be all out in in His kingdom as His Lord, as He is my Lord. I just want to pray this, beloved. First of all, let me go back to this. Have you ever drank of this cup? Have you ever said yes to Jesus? I'm not telling you, have you gone to church? I'm telling you the king has offered you peace, absolution, innocence through the gift of his son. But I remind you, when you drink of this cup, you're drinking in a family. You're drinking in a covenant, a relationship. That's what this is about. Have you? If you have, which cup are you drinking from now? Because my prayer, and by the way, if you know, if you know you've said yes to Jesus, you know there's a choice to be made, and you're like, well, I'm good. I've made that choice. But I'd like you to make a choice today in regards to this. And I'm not telling you, go live in a cave somewhere, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. God can tell you whatever he wants to do in regards to your life, but I can tell you this. He deserves to be the Lord. He deserves it. But this is an endless well. And this... Is a broken sister. If Jesus was really willing to die for us, to drink that cup of horror and desolation and judgment, so that He can offer us the cup of salvation, the only thing left is your choice. And He died on the cross to pay for all of our rottenness, was buried just like Scripture promised, and rose again on the third day, even as it was promised a thousand years prior in, in Psalm 22, but also in Psalm 16, but also was promised by Jesus himself even in our text here? Have you said yes to him? And if you have, are you saying yes to him today? Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And I know before us, no matter who we are in this room right now, sits two cups. On one side is the cup of judgment, and on the other is the cup of Consolation of salvation, if we've never said yes to you. But if we have said yes to you, you would like to enlist us into the purposes of the kingdom, to seek, to save, to serve, the least, the last, and the lost. And I pray, Lord, that for every person you choose to shine your spotlight on, that they would be servants there, me included. And I pray, Lord, for every person that you gift with whatever talent or spiritual blessing, that they would use that. They would use that, Lord, to serve because it's in your kingdom. And it's your property, and that includes us. So, Lord, for how we've been consumed and saturated with us, we want to submit ourselves to your Lordship. And that won't be convenient. And that won't be easy. Because you told us narrow is the road and difficult is the way of salvation. And there really are few who find it. And I recognize that if we're really going to follow you, we're going to go off-roading an awful lot in our shoes. Because the well-beaten path certainly is one that is of sought, seeking comfort and ease, but I pray, Lord, that as you give us a glance of eternity for even just a moment, that we would realize that nothing that is ever done in your name and service is for vain. Nothing, even the girl who pours forth, Lord, her ointment on your feet, becomes recorded in history even the gals who sponsored you as you went around, Lord, recorded in history and honored in heaven where there isn't black or white or male or female, but where there is honored, faithful servants, and I want to be one of those. So, Lord, for every Christian here, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word, would ignite our hearts to surrender to your Lordship. And here in this room, if you're not sure you've ever said yes to Jesus, I want to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree at the end, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let this be my prayer. So be it in my life. So please hear this and make that choice. Choose your cup today. God in heaven, I am a sinner. Every human being is a sinner, me included here in this room. And I stand guilty before you in my own credit, my own merit. But You've never demanded me to be perfect. You drank the cup of my punishment. You paid the price for the crimes of my heart. Because you're offering me peace. Father in heaven, you're offering me peace through Jesus. And I get this whole Last Supper thing where he's about to go and offer that cup to his disciples, the cup of a new covenant, the covenant of his blood, because the crimes of my heart really deserve serious punishment. But I recognize you'd rather die than live without me. You'd rather, by love, redeem me then banish me. So here in this room right now, I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you really want to make me innocent and make me yours, then I need to say yes. So, I say yes to Jesus' Lordship, His payment for me at the cross, His resurrection, just like He promised to give me a whole new life, but one under His Lordship. And I declare Jesus as my ransom, as my Savior, but also as my Lord. And I'm at your disposal now, as I am yours. Have me, I pray, in Jesus' name. And if that's you today, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers today. You've known, you've known, before we came in here, this would happen. Cement in those convictions, I pray and may we be now willing to sit underneath your right hand. And I thank you for that. Because we're in Jesus now. Just as Ephesians said we're seated in Christ above all of those principalities, powers, mights and dominions and anything named. And we were bought at a price and we want to glorify you now with our beings, with our bodies. So today, Lord, may we live the cup. May we walk the cup. May we think the cup. May we plan the cup. Please make us the family you are ordained in Jesus' name. Amen.